Let me take you back to the year 820 AD, where you can hear the sound of axes hitting wood and you feel the smell of freshly cut lumber as a beautiful Viking ship is being built on the west coast of Norway in an area with high mountains and deep, deep fjords going long inlands. The ship is made of carefully selected oak trees, using the typical Viking clinker technique, with each hull plank overlapping the other, ensuring that the ship will be both light yet robust. It is 22 metres long and is built for both rowing and sailing. In the front and stern it has beautiful Norse ornaments. This ship is almost as much a piece of art as it is a seafaring vessel. It looks very much like a classical longship, one of these Viking warships that at this time are terrorising European coastlines, but it's not really a warship. This is a symbol of power. This is a Ferrari, not a tank. This is a vessel built for beauty that will demonstrate the importance of the owner. It's a ship that might be used for a ruler to travel around and visit his or her subjects. Around a couple of decades after this ship is built, it is being buried on another side of Norway, in the area close to the town of Tunsberg. When the archaeologists found this burial site, they were shocked by what was in there. Because of unique conditions in the ground, everything had been more or less hermetically sealed. One huge problem when we are working with a Viking area is that so much was made of wood back then. Of course, wood rots, but here the entire ship is intact, in addition to enormous amounts of grave goods. In there you can find everything one could ever dream of in the afterlife. Sacrificed animals, everyday tools and jewellery and clothing, a wagon with extremely detailed and mysterious carvings, probably with themes stemming from the sagas, and a snow sled with a very peculiar pocket as well, with two Buddha figures on it. What on earth was that doing in a Viking grave from the 800s? This excavation of what is called the Oseberg ship continues to baffle historians, and there are just so many mysteries that are still unsolved. For example... Who was this power figure that got buried with all this stuff, buried in his Ferrari, so to speak, with so many riches? And there's probably even more riches than what was ever found, because we know that grave robbers have poked around there a little bit earlier. Well, as it turns out, it was no he. It was a she. In fact, two of them. This person that got this funeral befitted for an empress is a very old woman in her 70s and with her is another woman in her 50s and solving the conundrum of who they were and why they got this sort of burial might unlock some of the biggest mysteries from the Viking Age. Never 
Now, this is part two of our series on the Viking Age. Check out the first one also if you haven't already, uh, or you're also welcome to jump straight into this one, of course. I know there are some that might be curious about who the real-life Ragnar Lothbrok and Lagatha were that feature in the series Vikings, and this will be part of what we will tackle in this episode, so tag along. As we also did last time, I have to warn you that there are some pretty graphic descriptions here and there. For example, we will quite quickly come to some scenes involving rape and ritual murder. So if you are listening within the hearing range of kids, you know, this might be a good time to put in some earplugs or something. We will try to keep uh, a more or less coherent timeline of the major events but we will also need to jump a little bit back and forward for some of these earlier events to really make sense and also for us to understand the Viking Age because if we just go through, you know, every battle and every raid without any context, you know, that would be, first of all, boring and second of all, not very useful. So to begin with, I want to continue with the mysterious Oseberg ship and the two women that were found buried in that ship because... Above all, they might tell us something about the position of women in the Viking Age, but perhaps also about the importance and role of the Norse religion. First of all, it is just astonishing that the greatest ship burial that we know of is actually a woman's grave. And it's astonishing because in the Middle Ages, you know, they are not exactly known for gender equality. There are many things that points towards working women having a much more powerful and equal standing in general to men than what was the case in Christian Europe at this time. And you do have some exceptions of female monarchs also on the continent. There's an Anglo-Saxon princess, among others, that uh, leads an army. But all in all, the role of women was very often subordinate to men. And there was very little social mobility for both genders, really, but even less so for women in general. It was first thought that the oldest woman in the Oseberg ship was Queen Orsa, the grandmother of the later so famous Harald Feinheer, but that theory seems to have been abandoned somewhat. There are, regardless, quite a few very powerful Viking queens throughout the entire Viking Age, so having a woman at least as a co-ruler was not that unusual. What seems to be the most popular current theory on the Oseberg women is that the oldest one was some sort of priestess of Volva, a seer, and that she had really high religious standing. The younger woman is traditionally thought to be her slave, or a thrall, as the Vikings called them, Uh, that was sacrificed to accompany her master into the afterlife. But also tests have shown that um, she was well-fed, the younger one, so if she was a slave, she would likely have lived a life in relative luxury. We know that religion played a huge role in the old Norse society. These people did not quasi-believe in Thor and Odin and Freya. They really lived their lives in the presence of these gods. They knew they existed and long after being converted to Christianity, for several generations after actually, we will see that the remains of Norse religion is just there and refusing to go away. So it makes sense if this mighty, mighty funeral was held for an extremely important religious person that might have been, 
you know, some sort of touch point or interface between humans and the gods. And, you know, nonetheless, she was obviously a huge, huge deal. Just the overwhelming amount of grave goods points towards that. Uh, and there are also so many sacrificed animals in there. And we must remember that this is this is Norway we're talking about. It's quite a rocky, hard country where land goods were sparse. You know, the people that lived uh, there, they lived a lot from the sea. So killing plenty of valuable livestock and horses was a huge sacrifice. There were lots of textiles in there and other both expensive and useful stuff, if you believe, in the Norse version of the afterlife. And as I briefly mentioned, there was also a bucket there with Buddha figures on it, but it seems like they might not have been from the actual Buddha, and tests show that they likely came from Ireland, but it tells us something about how goods and people travelled a lot in the working age. And, you know, just to say, they actually did find a real Buddha in Sweden that was from before the working age, it likely came from the Far East. But... As a segue from the incredible Oseberg find, I want to talk a bit more about Viking women, because this is such an important topic that plays a huge part in everything regarding the Viking Age, and I think maybe is sometimes overlooked, which is a shame, because it's just really fascinating. When it comes to the raids, they likely played a big part in making the Viking uh, ships, at least they were often making the all-essential sails. We know that they also sometimes accompany the men at times when they were going on raids, and some women would likely have played a big, big role in controlling the home country. Many of the men would be out raiding. And also in Norse religion, that I think we can say is mirroring Viking society somewhat, we find a lot of really, really strong female characters like Frigg, the wife of Odin, Sieve, the wife of Thor, and Freya, the fertility goddess that is just so important for the Norse religion and that was one of the more popular gods. Now, there's been much debate around whether or not Viking women actually actively participated in combat. And I would like to say that the answer to this is yes, at least occasionally. It might not have been very often, but there seems to be quite a bit of evidence that this is in fact the case. And I'll also tell you why I personally think that they almost certainly would have been uh, fighting from time to time. You have the term shield maiden, and this is a thing that is passed down to us through near-contemporary sources. In the TV series Vikings that we've talked about, there's a lot of emphasis on them. And while this is exaggerated a lot, and the series in general is quite dodgy when it comes to historical accuracy, we do have a lot of indications that women occasionally were taking part in fights. In the series Vikings, for example, we have Lagatha, there's one of the main characters. She's a character mentioned in one historical source as one of the Danish king Ragnar Lothbrok's wife. And we will get to Ragnar soon. But Lagatha is one of these uh, mentioned in historical sources, clearly fighting along the men. Many have questioned the concept of women in medieval fighting as even a possibility because women normally have less physical strength than men. Uh, and a lot of medieval fighting would likely have been very, very physical. But I want to make a small detour and reflect a little bit on this because... I sometimes feel that this debate 
is a bit skewed. I personally compete in powerlifting and the difference in strength or lack thereof between the strongest women and the strongest men might surprise you. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's, there's definitely a difference. Uh, we know that. But adjusting for weight, there is not so much as you might think. And there is no problem finding women that are much stronger than the average soldier in any modern army. For example, Amanda Lawrence of the US, she weighs 84 kilos. She can squat 243 kilos, and that is kilos, not pounds, and deadlift over 260 kilos. And this is in the part of the competition that is called raw, so without any extra equipment that helps you lift more. So even though me, as a you know, older boys, veteran lifter, weighing almost 20 kilos more than her, she is completely crushing me in squats, and she lifts about the same as I can in deadlift. Where the gender differences in strength most clearly comes into play is usually in the bench press and when it comes to upper body strength. But still, it is quite possible to imagine that in a militarized society with more gender equality, where people were hunting and training with weapons from an early age, that you would have some very, very good female fighters. I mean, why wouldn't you? It would have been a waste of warrior talent if you didn't. And as opposed to Christian cultures and European monarchies, there is really nothing in Norse culture that would look down on women fighting. They, as the men, had a strong sense of honour and believed in the same Norse religion that would glorify success on the battlefield. Furthermore, there might have been a need to be able to defend oneself from bandits if many of the men was away raiding in the summer months. And also, we have found at least one figure, I think it's from 2015, that is clearly depicting a woman in battle gear with a shield and a sword, but there has also been claimed that this may also have been a Valkyrie. And a Valkyrie, these are the ones picking up the dead warriors from the battlefield to bring to Odin. But even if this sculpture is a Valkyrie, as we said, Norse mythology is reflecting Viking society and even the fact that there is something called a Valkyrie at all. You know, that females with swords and shields is a thing that tells us something really. We'll probably touch upon Valkyries later when we will dive even deeper into the Norse religion, but there are also other things that point towards Viking women occasionally participating in battle. The most telling, perhaps, is through recent archaeological discoveries and the so-called Birka woman. This is an archaeological find that really was and is a big game-changer in terms of this discussion. Earlier, there were a lot of doubters when it came to female fighters, but a fair few of those were turned into believers when what they always thought was a male warrior grave in fact proved to be the remains of a woman. Now, Birka was one of the most important trade towns in Sweden in the Viking Age, and the warrior was likely one of the Vikings that travelled east, uh, one of the so-called Rus Vikings. She was buried with a full warrior equipment for the afterlife, 
and there can be little doubt that this was her own weapons. It's really hard to find any other explanation. Further evidence is that in later Byzantine sources, there are reports of there being found dead women among the fighters on the battlefields. But as far as I know, we don't have that kind of information in the sources of Western Europe. But we do have sources, however, from this um, geographical area and time period saying that male warriors would be cared for by their women by their women after battles in France. So that might also indicate that women at least came with the men on certain raids. And it should also not be a shock because as we see that women in Germanic cultures at least partly are taking care um, in the battles are taking part in battles where they are cheering their men on and taunting them or even chasing them back to the battlefield in case they try to flee this is according to Roman sources the old Germanic and Norse cultures are quite closely connected it is also quite possible that there might have been female warriors among the dead in armour and helmets that would have been mistaken for men, as the very concept of female fighters might have seemed quite unthinkable for the Western Europeans. But this is, you know, of course, speculation. The in some sources mention that the only thing that would give away a female fighter would be their long hair being seen on the back from under their helmets. So if they're you know, would be, would have been a female corpse here and there on the battleground, it might go unnoticed. The topic of Viking women is just huge, and it's deeply fascinating, and I want to mention two more really colourful stories that we have documented in contemporary or near-contemporary sources, and they are not directly connected to fighting, but rather they can tell us something about the standing of certain Viking women. And, you know, if nothing else, they are quite juicy stories. The first one is of a Viking queen. We don't know exactly the name of her. She was likely either Danish or Norwegian. She appears to us after Vikings attack Muslim areas in Spain. And the local ruler is just baffled by who these people were, so he decided to send one of his most trusted men with an entourage up north to find out more about these strange people that were raiding his shores. When the emissary came up, he said to have met this tall and beautiful Viking queen. She almost seems a little bit like Galadriel from The Lord of the Rings, you know, like some sort of beautiful and mysterious elven queen. When the emissary sees her, he's so struck by her beauty that he's scared to look at her. And at first, she is insulted by this, and she asks the interpreter why he won't look at her, whereupon he replies that she's the most beautiful being he has ever seen, or something like that. And the queen is apparently flattered and asks him to be with her every day and gives him presents. It's very much, it very much seems like they quickly are developing some kind of romantic relationship. And after a while, the envoys' entourage, they start murmuring about their guy spending all this time with this working queen, thinking it being a little bit inappropriate and 
when he tells the Queen that he probably can't stay as much with her as he has because, you know, it might be inappropriate, she just laughs and tells him that in their society, the women can themselves decide what men they spend time with and can leave them whenever they want. I'm telling this story a little bit from memory, but it's you get the gist of it. And we know also that working women were actually allowed to divorce their husbands, something that was unheard of in other European cultures at the time. And as I think we might have mentioned in the previous episode, there are in fact stories also about Frankish noblewomen seeking refuge with the Vikings to flee slash divorce their husbands. Now this is something that really go against the rape and plunder narrative. But having said that, Viking women could uh, divorce their men on one uh, on the one hand, but on the same note, <laughs> it's quite comical, they can also be expected to follow their husband in the grave if he was powerful enough. And you know, apparently a few royal consorts or queens actually just divorced their king or chieftain because of this. And it, you know, it seems like a quite smart move, you know, you know, make sure you divorce the guy before he dies so you don't have to die also. The second and last example of extreme Viking girl power I will mention for now is just a mighty tale, and it's from the later part of the Viking Age. So there is this lady emerging in the sagas, and she is called Freydis Eiriksdottir. Apparently she is the daughter of the famous Viking Eirik the Red, and sister of perhaps even more famous Viking Leif Eriksson. That means that this story is from the from the later parts of the Viking Age and is connected to the travel to the New World, to Greenland, and what's today's Canada. She is mentioned a couple of times in the sagas, and of course we have no way of proving if all or anything of this is true, so we must take this with more than just a grain of salt, but or a pinch of salt, I suppose it's called. But in the but the one story about her. It's there too, and they're both fascinating. In the one, she has been deeply insulted. We're not entirely sure what happened here, but, you know, as Orna was a huge thing in the Viking era, she demands that her male relatives avenges her and wipes out the people that wronged her. And they do so. They go to the place they're staying and basically kills off everyone, but they refuse to kill the women. And Fredis is not a happy camper, so she goes into the place the women are staying and kills all five of them herself with an axe. Allegedly, of course. And while this is definitely in the category strong woman, or perhaps more so psychotic killer, that's up to you, this is still not the most dramatic tale of Fredis. In Eirik the Red's saga, the Vikings goes to Wienland and... She travels there with her family, and when they get there, they meet some of the Native American tribes that live in this area. And long story short, the natives and the Norsemen, they do not go well together. The Vikings had a quite condescending and perhaps a bit racist view of the Native Americans, calling them skrælinger, that either was playing on that they were sicklings or weaklings, or that they made a lot of noise, screaming a lot, but... I do think that they at times called other people skrailing it also, so perhaps that is a support by the weakling theory, I don't know. Anyway, weaklings or not, the story of Freydis comes when the Vikings are actually getting their butts kicked by the Native Americans and have to flee. 
Freydis is, according to the saga this time, heavily pregnant, and she can't run with the men that basically, uh, they basically abandoned her to her obvious dismay. So imagine that you are about eight months pregnant, and you have a lot of armed braves hunting you down, trying to kill you. So what do you do? You lie down and plead for your life? Not Freydis. What she does is that she takes on her battle face, picks up the sword of one of the falling working men, turns towards the attacking braves, unbuttons her shirt and flashes her breasts while taking the sword up and beating it steadfast against her bare chest and basically goes ballistic, screaming loudly, preparing for the attack, being ready to kill as many as possible. When these braves see this heavily pregnant fighting woman with her boobs out, I imagine her is quite tall also, they get absolutely terrified and turn around and withdraw. And it must have looked surreal to them. And to be fair, that's, you know, hardly no surprise. Now, who knows what really happened, but it's a great story. And the Viking men came back afterwards, a bit embarrassed, one might think, and they were understandably giving Frodis a lot of cred for her bravery. At least that is uh, about how the saga goes. I'm going a little bit by memory here as well. But nonetheless, I don't think history tells us many more powerful stories about female characters than this bare-breasted, pregnant, sword-swinging female berserker that is Frodis Eric's daughter. Now, we still do have a timeline here in our saga, our narrative. The way we are telling this story is that we will take a fair few detours here and there so uh, so that you will have the best possible understanding of these people. And according to our timeline that we started in the first episode with the attacks on British and British monasteries in the late 700s, we are now in the early to mid-800s. But... Before we go into describing describing more raids in detail, some quite spectacular, I really want to give you as much context as possible about how these rather colourful people were in order for you to be really able to visualise the events that follow. And as we've talked about the mystery that is the Oseberg ship burial with the two women buried with all that amazing stuff, I really want to mention and dig into one of the very, very few accounts we have of a Viking funeral. It is famous and is taking place around, you know, 80 plus years after the Oseberg burial. So we are again moving a little bit away from our original timeline. But this is a story that just gives us so much color that I wanted to include it as early as possible as a backdrop. This account comes from a traveler called Ahmad ibn Fadlan. And as the name suggests, he is coming from the Muslim world, which in itself is interesting because this is a contemporary source that is not coming from the Christian world and had not really the same traumatic experiences with working raids when he was describing these um, people. In fact, he had not even planned to mingle with Vikings at all. Uh, he just happened to meet them by coincidence and he's encountering them a quite big group of them uh, by chance on the Volga River that is in today's Russia. So these are likely Swedish Vikings going in on the large river systems that can take you all the way down to Constantinople. And it's worth noting that the Vikings traveling east probably to some larger extent were traders rather than pillagers, 
whereas the Vikings in the West, at least early on, is seen as mainly fighters. Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook from the podcast called The Rest is History, they have a very funny episode on the Vikings in the East, and uh, uh, they compare them a little bit to rugged fur traders uh, or fur trappers that you would have in the wild in the US and Canada a couple of hundred years ago. So that might give you some idea. And also, I highly recommend their podcast. It's it's really fun if you like history. But anyway, Bin Fadlan, he has just this great curiosity for these people that he meets. And this is a curiosity that we don't see in a lot of the Western European sources. And luckily, he has written down his accounts in detail. And of course, he might be exaggerating quite a bit, as with all basically medieval sources, because there is a lot we can put question marks on. But it is what it is. And I will quote quite extensively from it, because it's just pure gold. And just to repeat the warning from the start, if you thought the story about Freydis was brutal, we will get to some of the darkest things we will get to in this series when he is describing a ship funeral. So again, not recommended for children this, but we'll begin with some of the other observations because they are so unique and rare. And he writes this, quote, I saw how the Northmen had arrived with their wares and I pitched the camp beside the Volga. Never did I see people so gigantic. They are as tall as palm trees and florid and ruddy of complexion. End quote. So maybe we already here see some sort of a red flag because the tales of the Vikings being so big is likely part of this you know, exaggerated noble savage narrative. There is a discussion on whether or not they were in fact bigger than the average human being at the time, likely not bigger than the Franks perhaps not bigger than some other people, or perhaps they were. Anyway, Bin Fadlan goes on, quote, The men among them wear a garment of rough cloth, which is thrown over one side, so that one hand remains free. Everyone carries an axe, a dagger, and a sword, and without these they are never seen, end quote. He then goes on to describe the appearance of these Vikings, and telling us about excessive tattoos, quote, from the tip of the fingernails to the neck, each man of them is tattoos with pictures of threes, living beings and other things. The women carry, fastened to their breasts, a little case of iron, copper, silver or gold, according to the wealth and resources of their husbands. Fastened to the case they wear a ring, and upon that a dagger, all attach their breasts." End quote. He then goes on to describe how their different rings and jewellery is super important to them and how this reflects their social status. And we know that jewellery is important to the Vikings and that a lot of jewellery is found in various graves. But at this point, Ben Fatland's text all of a sudden changes form from admiration to something completely different. Just check this out. Quote, they are the filthiest race that God ever created. They do not wipe themselves after going to stool, nor wash themselves after nocturnal pollution, any more than if they were wild asses. End quote. So, <laughs> nocturnal pollution here means sex. And in between here, let's talk a little bit about sex and sexual abuse, because... Um, there is a bit of that coming up, and Vikings seem to be rather sexually frivolous, both the men and women, 
But when it came to sexual abuse and rape, I think it's important to separate uh, this in when it comes to slaves and when it comes to other women. Because there has come quite a bit of evidence that the sort of rape and pillage myth that we get from from a lot of these Viking narratives is wrong. Likely Vikings were not at all more rapists uh, than any other at at the time or any other armies at the time. And they were not seen as serial rapists, at least at the time, uh, not even by Christian Europe. And there are several historians that are pointing at this. For instance, Simon Copland, he sent me his article on the subject on Twitter. Very grateful for that. Thank you. But also others are mentioning the same. On the other hand, these people lived in a world of slavery. And this just very concept of slavery, I think is just really hard for us to fathom. Slaves would essentially be viewed as property. And they would in... Uh, like in most other slave societies. And it's just mind-blowing how that really uh, was possible for a slave, you know, to one moment you're a slave and then you're free. Uh, But if you were a slave and if you first had this sort of social status and you had this sort of, quote-unquote, like invisible hat on, your master could most likely abuse you however he wanted. And it seems like this was just completely normal. So... Ben Fadlan describes that the Vikings would build large wooden houses on the river and that what went on inside these houses seems quite X-rated and not necessarily voluntarily. Quote, Each man has a couch where he sits with the beautiful girls he has for sale. Here he is as likely as not to enjoy one of them while a friend looks on. At times, several of them will thus be engaged at the same moment, each in full view of the others, end quote. Now, as we said in the first episode, we do have some sources that seem to revel a little bit in the savages and their primitiveness and that they are in one way strong as bears, but then, you know, in the next sentence they are described as, you know, simple victims of their sexual urges. Just to continue a bit on the not-so-jolly topic, sexual abuse and rape, historians Kim Mjordadar and Vegard Vike in their book Vikings at War actually say that there are no contemporary sources telling us uh, about mass rape by Viking raiders. On the other hand, we have the annals of St. Bertrand from the 830s that do tell us about rape by soldiers, but then it's actually Christian soldiers doing the raping and in one case also against nuns. And it might be that rape in Viking raids is not specifically mentioned just because it might have been such an obvious part of medieval armies raiding, but we don't know. And while we are talking about this grim topic uh, that Ben Fadlan will also get deeper into soon, I also want to tie this a bit to Viking society and the role of women that we spoke about just before in the gender equality aspect. Because, as we have suggested, women could in many regards be highly respected and have roles of power, they could likely fight on the battlefield and have their own sense of honour, and if you were found guilty of raping a free virgin, you would be killed for that in working society. That's at least according to Adam of Bremen, a more or less contemporary historian. So, much more than a question about gender this tolerance for sexual abuse seems to be a question about social class. 
In other words, rape as such was just a heinous crime in working society as it seems to have been in Christian societies. But if you were a slave, you had absolutely no rights. You were property and being raped over and over by your owner seems to be something that you would have to accept if you were a slave. And this is really dark, I know. And to be honest, slavery in itself is just perhaps the darkest chapter of all humankind, if you ask me. And yet, it has been so widespread all around the world in so many different civilizations that it's really hard to grasp, really. And, you know, we all know slavery uh, in the US. It didn't end until the Civil War. And sometimes I must pinch my arm to remember how recent that actually was. I mean, it was practically yesterday in a historical sense. George Washington famously got children with his slaves, for example. I'm not saying this to sort of put any moral judgment on Americans, and most of you listening are normally from the US anyways, but we've seen similar things in many other countries up until quite recently. And, you know, for my own heritage's sake, Norwegians participated in the slave trade from Africa on a quite massive scale. Norwegians treated minorities like the Sami people just terrible. And for my sort of other cultural reference, Australians have got, you know, not the best track record, sort of to say, when it comes to treatment of Aboriginals. So, you know, we are many that don't need to go that far back, uh, many or many generations back before our, our forefathers had a view of minorities and social class in ways that we would find appalling today but you know i'm sorry i digress a little bit the point i'm making is that vikings sexually abusing their female or male slaves do not necessarily reflect their politics when it comes to gender equality there is plenty to suggest that viking women were much more equal than women in other european societies at the time and for all we know, free working women might have also, you know, exploited male slaves or themselves been slavers. We don't know. The thing that might point to uh, Vikings raping during raids is that they would, of course, have taken many slaves. And once they had conquered these people in battle and captured them as slaves, they, of course, could face a very grim fa- uh, future indeed. And if you are not completely unsettled by now, and, uh, you know, not like me, just look at historical atrocities with sort of fascination and curiosity, I can now tell you that we are getting into Ben Fadlan's descriptions of this Viking funeral, and you can't really make these things up. It's just that strange. And it seems like he has stayed with Uh, the Vikings for quite some time because he's describing things like how they take care of their sick or rather not take care of. He says that when someone is sick, they are placed in a tent with bread and water away from all the rest, not to be allowed to return until they recover. And if you were a slave, that you would uh, just be left there to rot if you died. So not very humanitarian sort of culture. And his description of this funeral is just gruesome in our eyes, yet really fascinating. Bin Fadlan is telling us about the funeral of a chieftain among them that he follows, um, and this chieftain will have with him a young female thrall in his grave. And first he tells us how this works in general. Quote, At the death of a rich man, they bring together his goods and divide them into three parts. The first of these is for his family, the second is expended for the garments they make, 
and with a third they purchase strong drink against the day when the girl resigns herself to death and is buried with her master. To the use of wine they abandon themselves in mad fashion, drinking it day and night, and not seldom does one die with a cup in his hand. End quote. So this is a description of a, of a rich man's funeral in general, and then he goes on to gory detail of this specific chieftain. Quote, When the man of whom I spoke had died, they asked his girls, Who will die with him? One of them answered, I. She was then committed to two girls, who were to keep watch over her, accompany her wherever she went, and even on occasion wash her feet. End quote. So as soon as the slave girl has volunteered, she's all of a sudden somebody that will be treated well and even pampered with. And this ritual is something that goes over many days. It is almost like there is this kind of festival atmosphere there, like Burning Man or Skilda Rock Festival or something like that, with a lot of drink um, bought from the dead chief and stuff, and there's a lot of singing and a lot of joy actually. He describes that the Viking boss was to be burned and that they had constructed a burial chamber or a tent on top of one of their ships where him and his belongings would sit. And he writes, quote, When the day was now come that the dead man and the girl were to be committed to the flames, I went to the river in which his ship lay, but found that it had already been drawn ashore. Four-corner blocks of birch and other woods had been placed in position for it, while around were stationed large wooden figures on the semblance of human beings. End quote. These figures, they sound like they are depictions of the Norse gods. And he then starts describing this old woman that he apparently finds completely horrendous and that he says is called the Angel of Death. Quote, it was she who attended to the sewing of the garments and to all the equipment. It was she also who was to slay the girl. I saw her. She was dark, thick-set, with a lowering countenance. End quote. He then describes that they are sacrificing animals and throwing them onto the ship. A dog... Uh, and a couple of horses. And just for comparison, remembering the Oseberg burial with the two ladies, there were 15 horses that were sacrificed. Now this is a ceremony that seems to last all day, and Bin Fadlan then goes on to describe what happens to the slave girl. Quote, The girl who had devoted herself to death meanwhile walked to and fro, entering one after another of the tents which they had there. The occupant of each tent lay with her, saying, Tell your master I did this only for love of you. When it was now Friday afternoon, they led the girl to an object they had constructed, and which looked like the framework of a door. She then placed her feet on the extended hands of the men, was raised up above the framework, and uttered something in her language, whereupon they let her down. End quote. 
So they do this three times, and Ben Fadlan asks the guy beside him what, what it means, and he tells him that she the first time say that she can see her father and mother, the second time she's lifted up, she can see her dead family members, and the last time she says that she can see her dead master that she is about to join. She is then taken on board the ship with a burial chamber or tent built on top of it, and Ben Fadlan continues, quote, Here she took off her two bracelets and gave them to the old woman who was called the Angel of Death and who was to murder her. She also drew off her two anklets and passed them to two serving maids who were the daughters of the so-called Angel of Death. Then they lifted her into the ship but did not yet admit her into the tent. Now men came up with shields and staves and handed her a cup of strong drink. This she took, sang over it, and emptied it. End quote. He then say that the old woman keeps pushing, you know, these drinks into her, and they might have included some sort of drugs because Bin Fadlan say that she is getting disoriented, and uh, then this is when she's finally taken into the chamber where the dead chieftain lies, and. This is just very, very dark. Quotes. The hag seized her by the head and dragged her in. At this moment, the men began to beat upon their shields with staves in order to drown the noise of her outcries, which might have terrified the other girls and deterred them from seeking death with their masters in the future. Then six men followed into the tent and while each and every one had carnal companionship with her, then they laid her down by her master's side, while two of the men seized her by the feet and two by the hands. The old woman, known as the Angel of Death, now knotted a rope around her neck and handed the ends of two to two of the men to pull. Then, with a broad-bladed dagger, she smote her between the ribs and drew the blade forth, while the two men strangled her with the rope till she died. End quote. So, if any of you will now have nightmares about the angel of death after this, I'm very sorry, but don't say you weren't warned. So, what can we read out of the text of Ibn Fadlan? If it is to be taken as truth, there are a few things that we can learn, and that is when it comes to working appearance, it's uh, regarding religious rights, and when it comes to women joining on travels, because there is definitely Norse women with these Vikings that he met, and we know this uh, because he give a detailed description of what the Norse women are wearing and so forth. And then, of course, there is this angel of death figure uh, that is there and she is there with both her daughters. It seems kind of unlikely that she as a Norse priestess of a kind is, you know, someone they just found hanging around in what is today's Russia. So she likely came with them on their travels to take care of ceremonies such as this. And if the theory about the oldest woman in the Oseberg ship being some sort of volva or seer, she might have been this kind of angel of death figure. According to Kat Jarman, she is both a historian and a bioarchaeologist. 
There are quite a few things suggesting that women were with the Viking armies and that a fair few of them were likely women that came from Scandinavia, even though we do not necessarily know what role they played. But one thing I just want to stress is that much of how we have looked at Viking history up until now is clearly seen through a quite patriarchal and post-Christian lens where women traditionally have not held positions of power. And the reason why I feel this is obvious is that even though there are so many references to Viking women playing a powerful role in Viking society, both in the sagas, in the mythology and through archaeology, many historians have downplayed the role of Viking women, saying that this is a fantasy. But we constantly forget that the way we interpret history always is dependent on our own biases and our own society. And it's fair to say that the pre-Christian Viking communities were very, very, very different from that of Christian Europe that are obviously today much more familiar to us. Or as Kat Jarman write about the importance of Viking women in her excellent book River Kings, quote, some criticize those who emphasize such points for going too far in the wrong direction, creating a fictitious female-dominated society in the Viking past, a matriarchal fantasy fueled by 21st century desires and sentiments. Yet this criticism is unfair and unnecessary. We can't deny those people, uh, those women, sorry, a place in the Viking world and we have to seriously and rigorously assess the ways in which we consider their agency. Whether or not they were river queens is undecided, but they were undeniably there, an active and instrumental part of the phenomenon, end quote. If you're still here with me after all the unsettling tales of Ben Fadlan and discussing Viking women's role, we will soon progress to our timeline where we ended the first episode. And even though we've now, you know, we've spent roughly half this first episode about just bare-chested female Viking berserkers and really, really unsettling funerals, there's just one other thing that I must briefly mention in order to understand Viking behavior before we get to our Ragnars and Oscars and, uh, and all the other Viking kings, and that is the concept of honor. Uh, this really can't be underestimated in Viking culture and would be uh, important long, or long after the historical construct that is the Viking Age. You would, for example, have these terrible blood feuds going on for generations, and this is partly, or a lot to do, really, uh, with honour. In the tale of Ralph Kraki, living before the so-called Viking Age, he's not concerned with taking over the rival king's land. He's only interested in harming the other king's honour. And this is, you know... This is the most important thing for him. It's not conquest. And also women had honor and would be able to divorce a man that did not respect her honor and could also herself revenge acts harming the family's honor in some cases. I say the so-called Viking Age because the more I read about this era, the more I feel that that traditional view that it starts around Lindisfarne in 793 and ends at Stanford Bridge in 1066 is just wrong. I would say that it's more a 600-year period before, you know, between the year 600 and year 1200, because 
he had this maritime and cultural and political trends in this period that are really intertwined and it does not really start around one specific year. And a Norse sea warrior from the year 650 or something in the year 1150 would likely look, you know, very much like a Viking to us. Some difference and some use of symbols, the christening taken into consideration, but you get my point. Now regarding honour, it plays a big part in the raids in England and France that we are now gradually turning back to. In the book Vikings at War, Jardaren Vike quotes the Norwegian king Magnus Barefoot, ruling from 1093 to 1103, like these quotes. One should have kings for honour, not for long life. End quote. So he had this kind of live fast, die young attitude that is very Viking, even though he was living after what we know as the Viking Age, and he also unsurprisingly died young while fighting, allegedly first by having both his ties pierced by a spear before an axe-wielding Irishman finished him off with a blow to the neck. But anyways, so for the Vikings proving themselves in battle in faraway lands, that would be seen as a feat to test their honour, and retreating from the battlefield was not something you should do unless your master was killed to whom you have sworn allegiance. So this would also play a part in Vikings being just terrible, terrible opponents because they firstly had this idea that dying in battle would give you a great afterlife and they secondly would not retreat in fear for the extreme humiliation. So these are often armies that can't or won't rout and as we know, the most casualties in these battles often come when armies broke and started running. And while there are examples of Viking armies fleeing, it likely did uh, happen much more rarely than with other armies due to the Honor Codex. Jordanwicke actually cites Honor as one of the main reasons for the entire outbreak of Viking raids. Quote, the Vikings' increasing hunt for honour can be part of the explanation for the explosive wave of raids of plunder in the 9th century. On the home front, one of the problems with the endless struggle for honour was that the growth of one man's honour always had to be at the expense of another's, with consequent threat of revenge from the losing party or from his friends or family. The struggle for honour was therefore often very perilous, Honour was a scarce commodity to be shared among members of society. If some were to have more, others must have less. Therefore, making war outside their own society might offer an easier way for young warriors to gain honour and social advancement. End quote. So in other words, raiding was just one way of gaining increased social status and to climb the social hierarchy. A typical Viking soldier, he would swear allegiance to his master and he would be cited all the punishments that he would receive if he let his master down. And the master on his side was expected to be generous with the loot and reward the soldier when they were victorious. Often a soldier would be bound to his master in form of a ring that would be proof of his oath and we've seen this in many sort of Viking TV series that they have this arm ring or ring of some sorts and as we've said the Viking society 
was a militarised and a violent one. You would, for example, have concepts like trial by combat would be quite usual. That meant that two men would fight to the death. Or you also had the so-called Hong Gong that was a more of a regulated form of duel that did not necessarily mean that the loser died. And being great at fighting, that was also seen as a necessity for a Viking leader. So there was no sitting behind the others and seeing how it went kind of thing. If you were a Viking seeking or chieftain, you would be expected to excel on the battlefield and would lead your troops in battle from the front. Now, if you were unfortunate enough to be an Anglo-Saxon or Frankish soldier meeting one of these naval armies, you could expect to meet very well-trained warriors that were excellent in fighting from ships and that would likely never surrender no matter what and might even actively seek an heroic death on the battlefield. They would, you know, for good reason, perhaps be seen as rather fanatic or crazy in their assault, so not too cool to face them with a spear in your hand. Anyways, towards the end of Charlemagne's reign, he, according to legend, sees a fleet of Viking ships on the horizon from his balcony, and he says something like him feeling sad, not for himself, but for his people that are to suffer the fate of facing these savage Norsemen. Now, Charlemagne, Charlemagne, he dies in 814. He's 66, and his death is, you know, obviously not great news for the Carolingian Empire, that will gradually lose some of the stability that it has had. And this instability will in turn play a massive role in the Viking raids that is to come because the Vikings will exploit this and will even in some cases be high muscle as part of the ongoing internal conflict, which is also an interesting perspective when it comes to understanding the Viking raids because in some cases they might have been quite clearly invited and even pointed in the right direction, you know, for for sort of juicy targets by local rulers that were, you know, following their own interests. When Charlemagne dies, he is replaced by his son. That's a guy called Louis the Pious. That is a monarch not of the exact same mould as his father. According to Professor Kenneth W. Hull, it's always a red flag when a medieval ruler is called the pious because it normally means that there really isn't anything other good to say about him. And that might also be the case about uh, Louis. But on the other hand, he ruled over a quite prosperous empire for quite some time. So maybe it's also a little bit that the most sort of steady uh, emperors did not get the biggest headlines. Who knows? Anyways, during his reign, Louis will not have the same problems with Vikings as his son will, Charles the Bold, a little bit later. In fact, it seems like Viking raids in the West kind of is quieting down a little bit in the start of the 800s, or at least we don't really have that many entries in historical annals as we will have a little bit later, even though there are still a fair few. And just because we don't really know about them does, of course, not mean that they did not take place. As you will know by now, there are so many caveats when it comes to medieval sources, and in some cases it might be a, you know quite random what have survived and what is passed down to us. But if you take, for example, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it's not seem, it doesn't seem like there is too much trouble from the Vikings for the first few decades of the 800s, whereas later on, 
the Viking attacks will be almost all there is in the entries for several years. And that's when it becomes you know, quite clear, the British kingdoms are more or less in full war with the Viking forces. So in the West, the raiding takes place mostly on the British Isles and in Ireland and then on the Carolingian Empire. That is today's France, Belgium, Netherlands, roughly parts of Germany, even though that will be split up somewhat later between Charles the Bald and his brothers. There are also Viking raids as far south as in Spain and further inland in the Mediterranean. And over the course of the Viking Age, Viking ships will have been, well, I say more or less every place in Europe that has a coastline or a large river system. Travels were remarkably fast with these ships. We are often just talking about days of travel for what seems like a huge geographical distance. And knowing that they would set a base many places much further south than in their homelands, you can see how that makes them incredibly mobile, making it possible to travel more or less everywhere nature allowed. Now, I will not cover all the different rides that we have records of, because they would be a bit tiresome as they are often similar, but I'll try to include the most important and the most important figures. And here I want to introduce you for our colourful friend the Viking called Ragnar Lothbrok, as promised earlier. One can argue that from a historical perspective, he might not be the most important Viking king to rule in the 800s, but because of his son's later actions in England, he is quite important. And also for us in popular culture, you know, he's all of a sudden become this TV celebrity as he is the main, uh, main character for the first season of the blockbuster TV series Vikings. The series as a whole is not especially historically accurate, and Ragnar is not the brother, for example, of the famous Viking Rollo. He comes into the frame a little bit later and is likely not even born when Ragnar dies, but Ragnar has now become the poster boy of Vikings through the series, and um, he's played by an Australian, by actor Travis Fimmel, and in the series he's kind of this eccentric Viking king that is married to his big love, Lagatha, that is this blonde and powerful shield maiden, just as good with a sword as any man. So who is he in the historical sources? In the historical sources, there is actually not that much about Ragnar Lothbrok, and he is not really, I would say, the prominent figure one might think after watching the TV series, and some have even speculated that he is only a mythical figure, but at least we know that a few of those that claim to be his sons are real enough as they will leave a huge mark on British politics. So I think we can safely assume that there is that Ragnar, but exactly what he accomplished and what children he actually fathered, we can't know for sure. The name Lothbrok means something like shaggy pants or similar to that. It's a little bit hard to translate what it, what it means or what it entails. I don't really understand it, to be honest. But he used to wear these iconic pants that was part of his trademark. And I envisioned them as being kind of Viking cowboy leather pants with leather fringes or something hanging from them. But who knows what they really looked like. One of those that mention Ragnar Lothbrok is our old friend Saxo Grammaticus from the first episode that has a quite detailed part about him and then about his sons. Ragnar is also found in various sagas 
And while the sagas are some of our most important sources, they sometimes borders between the historical and the supernatural. So for that reason, it's naturally hard to know exactly how much emphasis we should put on them. It can be a little bit hard to trust them too much when you're all of a sudden talking about giants or dragons and trolls and so forth. But on the other hand, we can in many cases find people and events mentioned in the sagas that we know are historical and historically accurate. So much is actually also partly true. We just need to filter away the fairy tale aspects of them. The sagas were written down quite a bit after what we call the Viking Age, mostly on Iceland, and are key for preserving the many stories that was part of an oral tradition with skulls and so forth. And as we mentioned, honour was important, so was PR. So if you were a Viking king, you would try to have some good songs and verses to be sung about you around the campfires, and you might want to employ a good skald or two to ensure that this happens. So, you know, it's... Skald is kind of a reporter that follows you around to, to, to record all the fantastic deeds you do. So much of this Skaldic poetry likely ends up in these sagas and would be based on three events, but obviously skewed in favour of the employer. There is a saga called the Saga of Ragnar Lothbrok, and once I start telling you about it, you will understand why these sagas can be a little bit dubious as sources. In one of the copies that we have that has survived uh, from this saga, it follows directly from what is called the Walsong Saga. And this is a saga of Germanic slash Norse origin. And Richard Wagner's grand opera, The Ring des Nibelungen, is using this saga as a backdrop. In this story, Siegfried, or Sigurd, as he's called in Norse, is the big hero. He's the Viking superstar. Sigurd is a star partly because he kills a dragon. So that's when we get the dragons into the mix. And in Norwegian he's called Sigurd Fovnespalne, and Fovne is being the name of the dragon. So he is the big dragon slayer, nothing less. Now Sigurd, he has a daughter called Oslag, and Ragnar Lothbrok's, uh, in Ragnar Lothbrok's saga, Oslag is becoming his wife. And I suppose she also comes into the frame in the Viking TV series. And she there believed that she has some superpowers because of her mystical father. So here is an example of where the mythical and historical clearly meet. Now, I haven't read this entire saga myself, but the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok is supposedly more about Oslog than him. You know, it's more about the famous daughter of Sigurd, and there is just so much that gravitates around Sigurd, you know, Sigurd this and Sigurd that. So you have to, after watching the Viking series, think that Ragnar was the big Viking superhero of the day. Chances are that this mythical Sigurd was in fact the more mainstream hero. So Ragnar might have been pretty cool and all that, like a cool small indie rock band with your quite few dedicated followers. But Sigurd would have been your mega pop star, your Bruce Springsteen and what have you. Or perhaps Sigurd seems more like this kind of James Bond figure in the tales, you know, one that everyone knows, and there are so many stories about him, the superhero, the pulse of all these unlikely stunts. Actually, um, and actually one interesting, a little bit nerdy digression, and I suppose that if you're all listening to this podcast, you are a bit nerdy as well, the stories about Sigurd might in fact be a reference to, or a faint memory of, 
another real-life Germanic superhero that we know existed, namely a guy called Arminius. He is the guy that famously defeated not a dragon, but the Roman legions in the Teutoburg Forest in the year 9 AD, allegedly making Emperor Augustus so frustrated that he would shout to his defeated commander Varus, Give me back my legions in his palace in Rome. Very famous scene that. And if this is the case, it's another interesting link between the Germanic and the Norse cultures, not least with reference to the theories we discussed in a previous episode about the Viking raids being partly a response to the Holy Roman Empire's imperialism and religious persecution. Anyways, back to Ragnar. Ragnar Lothbrok, he... As we said, he will often be called semi-mythical by historians, but, you know, I think we can say he existed. The problem with him is not for lack of reference, really, but that there is so many different things that here and there are partly accredited to him. So it seems a little bit unlikely that he did all these things that he uh, is associated with. And there is quite a big possibility that the tale of Ragnar is really events done by several Danish kings packed into one story uh, and it's also quite possible that there are several different Ragnars about at around the same time that you know has merged into Ragnar Lothbrok. If you take everything into account he would have raided in Ireland, Great Britain, Norway all the way up to the Arctic Circle, Sweden, Finland, Belgium, France and among other things participated in the Siege of Paris in 845, which might be very, very true. We'll get to that very soon. But there is suspiciously many events that he's tied to Ragnar. So also several different wives he had and a whole different bunch of sons. And also another problem with him is that some of these are, uh, some of these wives they are mentioned in one source, but not in the other one. And, you know, there's very little overlap also in some cases, which is a problem, of course. However, what all sources do seem to agree on is that there was this working hero, perhaps he was the king of Denmark, perhaps king over more areas in and around Scandinavia, that was called Ragnar and that raided in the west and that had formidable sons that went on to conquer England. The most common story is that Ragnar was taken prisoner by the king of Northumbria, that's one of the British kingdoms, called Ella or Ella, that threw Ragnar into a pit full of venomous snakes that bit Ragnar so that he died. And according to legend, Ragnar would have said something like, how the little piggies will grunt when they hear how the old boar suffered, uh, pointing to that his sons would take a terrible revenge upon the English Isles for his death which they did with the great heathen army. Now, we don't know exactly when Ragnar was born, if he existed, but he seems to have raided in Ireland in the early 830s, and the year when his sons are leading the great heathen army into England is in year 865. So if this was in fact a mission of revenge, he must have been dead by then. One source say that he died of disease in Denmark and that his son's attack on England was not a revenge mission, but again, who knows. So, what about Lagatar, the shield maiden that plays such a huge part in the TV series Vikings? 
She's not mentioned in the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok, and similarly, Orslag is not mentioned in the Saxa Grammaticus works on Denmark's history, but both sources agree that he at one point also had a wife called Thura that he had some fantastically skilled sons with. In Saxa's history of Denmark, Ragnar is a young man having a conflict with the king of Sweden, and much like Ralf Kraki, he goes up there to settle business, and in his travel from north from, uh, to the north from Denmark, he comes across this beautiful shield maiden fighting at the very front of the line with enormous skill and passion. He also finds out that she is of noble birth, and basically he's dying to marry her. Lagatha, or Ladgarta, as she's also called, is however not that convinced, but agrees to let Ragnar come to her. So Ragnar is super keen, but when he arrives to her chambers, she has put this really angry dog and a bear in front of her door to prevent him from entering, whereupon Ragnar kills both the animals and ends up having three children with her, apparently living a quiet life for a few years. Two of the children were girls that we don't know the name of, and the son was called Fridleif, that allegedly, uh, allegedly ruled in Norway for a little while. After a bit, it seems that Ragnar gets restless and he divorces Lagatha for the reason that he is still a little bit scorned that she put angry animals out for him, but they do seem to have a divorce on good terms because when he a little bit later gets in trouble, he asks Lagatha for help, whereupon she sends him a fleet of 120 ships from Norway, you know, just for all time's sake. And not only that, she engages in the battle herself, playing a decisive role in Ragnar's victory. Saxa Grammaticus writes this, quote, Ladgarda, who had a matchless spirit, though a delicate frame, covered by her splendid bravery the inclination of the soldiers to waver, for she made a sally about and flew round to the rear of the enemy, taking them unawares, and thus turned the panic of her friends into the camp of the enemy. End quote. So, believe it or not, but she definitely falls in under the category of working girl power, and if that isn't enough, when she returns to Norway, she, according to Saxo, kills her new husband and takes over all of his staff and power, so obviously we can't trust him, uh, blindly, but this is basically where she exits the the story for good. So, not that much is known about the historical Lagartha, other than that she had kids with Ragnar, was a great fighter, and likely held quite significant status in Norway. And as you will understand, there is quite possible that she is entirely made up, as we have no other sources proving to us that any such queen ever lived. But on the other hand, there is also so much we don't know about the Viking Gary in the 800s, so it's also quite possible that there was someone with that name. Like I've said, we don't really know or don't really have any clue about who the two Viking women in the Oseberg ship was. And when we can't even identify someone with that sort of mega important funeral, there will for sure be plenty of other petty kings and queens from the various small kingdoms that we also have to uh, to just accept that we don't have the faintest idea who were. On that note, reading up on the Viking era actually can be quite frustrating sometimes because we often 
only have names and a tiny, tiny bit of a story to them, but then very little else. You get maybe, and that's much less than we get with Lagatos. You can have a name and his or her nickname, perhaps her father or mother or his or her daughter, and a very, very quick explanation what they did. Like he was married to this and he was the Earl of that and something, something, but that's all we get. So we basically kept guessing for a lot of the part and really these entries did not, I mean, it doesn't tell us very much other than that there was a very fragmented political landscape before the nation states of Norway, Denmark and Sweden uh, got more cemented. But I mean, luckily we are left with some real heavy hitters and a little bit more colour. And speaking about colour, there's even literally a guy that has the nickname The Peacock, first name Olaf. Maybe we'll get back to Olaf later, we'll see. But Ragnar, he is the main character for now. Um, and I think this is the Ragnar we must assume is the Ragnar Lothbrok. It might be another Ragnar, because in 840 or in the 840s, the attacks on what is modern day France really starts ramping up. And the poor descendants of Charlemagne, they are about to really learn the meaning of the word Danegeld, that is the mainly silver they needed to cough up to make sure the ever more rampant Vikings would go away. As we will see, it would soon end up like more or less like a mafia business or a protection racket where you had to pay up to the Vikings or suffer the consequences. In the mid-830s, there is much Viking activity in Friesland. That is roughly today's Holland and Belgium. And right about 840, there is a massive boom of Viking attacks all across Francia and up the rivers of the Seine, Loire and Rhine. One of the contemporary Frankish sources, the Annals of St. Bertin, has a reference of Viking activity every single year from 841 to 874, meaning that for the next three decades, the Vikings are making the headlines constantly. And here I'll have to do something that I kind of told myself that I wouldn't do, but that is that we are going to focus on Viking activity a little bit region by region now. My initial idea was to just go through all events over all of Western Europe year by year, but I see now that that will be difficult. So first we will focus on the attacks coming on the Carolingian Empire. This is the uh, uh, Frankish Empire. I, I use these words a little bit interchangeably. But just remember that there are other Viking things going on in parallel here also in England and Ireland and other places um, further south and also likely in the east. But let's first really dig into what comes with the attacks on Charlemagne and his successes, because this will eventually change European history. The first part of the conflicts between Vikings and Franks seems to be a little bit more intertwined with the politics of the Kingdom of Denmark and the Carolingians with Louis the Pious. There are some early raids south in today's France, all the way down to the border to Spain, and there is a monastery down there that is getting raided, it seems, routinely about every year. But it's not really until the mid-830s that this conflict is really, really kicking off, for, for real at least. At first, there are many large-scale attacks in an important trade city called Dorestadt in Friesland. And the Danish king Horik, or Horik, Horik, or Horik, might or might not 
have had quite a bit to do with that. He likely had. But he is kind of using these attacks in a political game with uh, Louis the Pious and the Carolingians saying that, you know, I'm really sad that these Vikings attacks are taking place. You know, he can probably make them stop if they only give him uh, those lands to control for himself. Now, that's not going to happen. But the Carolingians do now have a big Viking problem to the north. So when Louis the Pious dies in 840, things are really getting messy. And basically this is when the empire of Charlemagne is starting to break up. As in all monarchies, the lines of succession and peaceful transition of power is one of the most difficult things, and monarchies are never as vulnerable as when they are in these periods of transition from one ruler to another. And this is very much the case here. Now, Louis has decided to share the empire between his three sons and also his nephew, So that meant that Charles the Bald would eventually get the western part of the empire, that is, large parts of what is today's France and Netherlands and Belgium, while Luther I would take control over the Middle Kingdom, and Louis the German took the eastern part that, yep, you guessed it, is large part of today's Germany. And in addition to that, uh, a guy named Pepin II got Aquitaine, he's the nephew. Now, sharing power like this and also splitting up empires uh, in this way really works well. It might look good on paper and all and you, you know, you sit there with your sons and you draw it all up on the map and all will nod in agreement. But when push comes to show, it's, it's a recipe for conflict. And so it was here, even though it didn't transpire, just like I just described There was a series of bloody conflicts between these brothers resulting in little central command and little military structure and allegiances in complete disarray. And in 840, there has already been a natural increase of Viking attacks on the Frankish coasts. Now, Luther I, he's not too happy with Charles the Bold seemingly getting all that sweet French soil and the city of Paris and other great French cities all by himself. So he allegedly reaches out to one of his Danish vassal kings, a rather prominent figure called Harald Kluck, and asks him, basically he says... Hi mate, how about, you know, you and some of your Viking friends go and raid a little bit down in my brother's lands, you know, just to stir things up a little bit and let's see what happens. And this is something that Harold is more than happy to, to do. So Harold sends the word up to Westfall. This is an area with a lot of Vikings. It is situated in modern day Norway. It's been part of Denmark on and off also in this in this area. And he's saying... The time is ripe for a bit of raiding in the French river systems. And on the 14th of May, 841, a fleet from Westfall arrives in the river leading up to the city of Rouen, led by a Viking known to us today as Oskar or Oskar. And it's fair to say that Lothar and Harald Clark will very soon get this situation completely out of control. After first looting and raiding a bit around the city of Rouen, 
Oscar and his men went into the city and took everything they could of value and would kill everyone that would oppose them before finally setting the entire place on fire. This allegedly lasted for two full days, and local annals say that they eradicated the city and its people with murder and fire. And they would also take people captive and ransom them. So basically, if you wanted to see your father or local bishop alive again, you better pay up to Oscar. And I just want to mention something here that can help us explain a little bit of the Waikum modus operandi, because in these local annals, they are quite repetitive uh, in saying that the Vikings come, they raid, they plunder, they kill, and they capture people for ransom, and then they set everything on fire. And this, of course, seems, you know, a little unnecessary, a little over the top, you might say, and it was understandably looked upon as kind of cruel by the people of the day, but it has something to do with Viking mythology, as setting stuff on fire after conquering it was a way to prevent evil spirits and ghosts to emerge from there later on and to, you know, quite literally come back to haunt you. So it was not necessarily so that they were just quote-unquote evil, they wanted to burn stuff down to, as a kind of insurance. And another thing worth noting when we are about to see the Viking almost unstoppable lust for silver is that they were in fact hoarders in a way. They would often just get as much riches as possible and then dig it down in the ground somewhere because in the afterlife you would not only get what stuff was put with you in your grave but also all the treasures that you had dug down or at least they would also be possible for you to reclaim somehow in the afterlife. So the lust for silver and riches, was they, it was not always, what will you say, quote-unquote rational. And you could then basically never really get enough of silver because it was going to last you for eternity. One crazy example, in one such hold alone that was dug down on the Swedish island of Gotland, archaeologists found over 14,000 silver dirhams, that is silver coins from the Muslim world, 14,000. I mean, that's, it's just an insane amount of silver. And this was only one place. So, in 841, word must have returned to Westfall that cities like Rouen along the Seine River was ripe for plundering as more and more Viking fleets would start showing up there. And clearly some of these first annals must have exaggerated a little bit when they say that the Vikings completely destroyed the city of Rouen in 841 because we know that they will continue to sack it in the coming years and what was left of it over and over again. Now the Seine is a large beautiful river that will eventually take you to places like Nantes and Paris after Rouen and as the Vikings were pretty much unopposed or at least not opposed by any united Frankish army, as that was at this point occupied with internal struggles, they had this water highway more or less to themselves. And having the best ships in all of medieval Europe, you know, this was almost too good to be true for Oscar and his men. Ten days after the sack of Rouen, they came across a huge monastery with about 900 monks allegedly, and those of them that weren't killed were taken captive and sold off, and then the monastery was burned down. Then they came across another monastery close by that they only occupied 
before entering into negotiations with other monks on how much that they would need to pay them to prevent them from destroying the place. In the end, monks from the more famous Saint-Denis monastery arrived with the silver the Vikings demanded and also bought free a few of their brethren. This made this working fleet go away towards the end of May this year, 841, and they exited the Seine with their loot. But obviously by then the local population understood very well that the Vikings would just keep coming back. There are some signs from this time to suggest that Charles the Bald would try to solve this problem by pitching the different Vikings armies up against one another that he would try to get the Westfall Vikings that was on the Seine River to attack the predominantly Danish Vikings on the Somme River, but that didn't work out, and in lack of any real help from their king, the local population themselves tried to amass around military resistance. And this was less than futile, and they were reportedly slaughtered down like cattle by professional Viking soldiers that had by now gotten quite good at raiding, and that had had high-quality military equipment and tactics, and it just goes really without saying that this was never going to work. Apparently no city or monastery was spared along the Seine River in this period, and not only that, the Vikings started to settle down. They built up bays at an island in the middle of this big river, and it became more and more apparent that they weren't about to go away anytime soon. Two years after this, in 843, Oscar is still the man running the show on the Viking side, and likely due to some political interference from the Frankish side, hoping to get an edge over their opponents in the ongoing civil war, he is tipped off that the city of Nantes can be a good place to attack. So he amasses a fleet of 67 warships and has with him another Norwegian sea king called Gunnar. They might have been up to a couple of thousand fighting men with them at most, and it's late June this year, 843, and according to local sources, there is a big feast going on in Nantes when they're all of a sudden overrun by people fleeing, telling them that the Viking fleet is just around the corner, and the mood in the city all of a sudden turns from party mode to panic mode. I will let historians Jardin and Bieke take it from here, as they explain this fantastically well in their book Vikings at War. Quote, The big Viking army soon stood in front of the gates. They would not have been impressed by the sight of the town's defensive works, which dated from the late Roman period and were old and poorly maintained. Most of the country's defensive works had been disintegrating during 200 years of internal peace, and Nantes was no exception. End quote. And then they go into detail about the attack itself. Quote, the Vikings used scaling ladders to storm the town walls and then open the town gates from inside. Many of the citizens sought refuge in the Cathedral of St. Peter and St. Paul, where Bishop Gunthard celebrated Mass. The doors were locked, but the Vikings smashed the windows and forced their way in. The sources relate that the murderers struck hardest at the clergy. They describe vividly how the bishop was killed halfway through a prayer, the Sursum Corda. He got as far as 
lift up your hearts before falling in front of the altar in a pool of blood. The priests, monks and canons suffered the same fate before the whole cathedral was plundered and set on fire. In the light of the burning town, the workings dragged prisoners and booty down to their ships. End quote. What seems to happen is that this again gets out of hand for both Lothar and to some extent also the Vikings themselves because there are actually reports that the Vikings would have started fighting amongst themselves when sharing the booty resulting in killings uh, amongst the Vikings and hostages managing to flee and there would later on be a death penalty put for those Vikings that couldn't behave themselves when it came to the process of sharing the spoils. But regardless of this, it is now blatantly clear that the Vikings are posing a serious threat to parts of the Carolingian Empire. And I should perhaps say that there are some disagreement on the impact of these raids amongst historians. And there seem to be, uh, you know, there's in general quite a bit of disagreement when it comes to the Middle Ages in Europe because there are so many caveats and uncertainties and biases in the sources, so some historians have downplayed these attacks on the Carolingian Empire in this time period, more like disturbances, you know, like mosquitoes annoying an elephant or something. But I would say that the lion's share of Viking historians would agree that these attacks did play a significant role, and that they, over time, uh, lead to you getting Viking lords and Viking vassals, the most famous of those, of course, being the Viking Rollo, that in turn plays a huge part in setting up what will become the feudal system in Europe. But just so you know, historians do put different emphasis on different things here, so you can find different views on this if you like. And I always encourage people to dig deeper themselves if they're interested. This is a, just a gold mine of different views and hypotheses, and they are all very interesting indeed. Okay, so what is about to happen? is, regardless of this historical discussion, kind of hard to explain as anything but a mighty, mighty blow for the Franks, as we are coming to the first Viking attack on Paris. The year is 845, and here we are about to meet our old pal Ragnar Lothbrok again, friend of the show now, one might say, as he is about to deliver some heavy blows to Charles the Bald. Now, we're not entirely sure that it is the same Ragnar Lothbrok. It might have also been another Dane called Ragnar, but we'll just call him Ragnar, and you'll be aware of this potentially being another Ragnar as we go along, but I like to believe that it's the very same Ragnar Lothbrok as we are talking about. As they saw the Viking ships coming closer upriver towards Paris, the monks of the monastery of Saint-Denis were shocked they knew very well of the raids, but they had never seen the ships this far inland before, and they quickly ran to hide away all the precious gold and silver that they had. And according to some, the Vikings would take several of the monks that did not escape from the monastery prisoner, and others that they viewed as too weak or old to be good slaves, they had fun with and mocked, and apparently they forcefully poured water up the noses of some of them to watch their stomachs swell up, and one guy that panicked and refused to be taken prisoner, they just killed on the spot. And there are also other accounts of monks and people, possibly slaves, working on the monasteries that are being killed for no apparent reason, but also I think we might remember that much as 
is to some extent propaganda. It has been questioned whether or not the Vikings would kill people for fun, and while that may of course have happened every now and then, there is nothing in the Norse warrior ethos that encourages killing defenseless uh, people. And they were in general, I would say, pretty pragmatic with what they did. So they might have killed as part of a religious ceremony or in, in, in order to intimidate. But there are also many cases where we know that they would just let people go if they were not deemed useful as slaves or if it was not likely that anybody would pay a ransom for them. What might be the case, however, is that as we said about there being a motive for revenge against the Christian culture, and there are reports of Vikings destroying large number of Christian texts and such, so there might be something to it that you would risk some extra ridicule slash torture slash, well, maybe death even, if you just were a representative for the church, depending on the mood of the Vikings that you were so unfortunate enough to be taken captive by. Anyways, Paris, 845. It is not a huge city at this point. It will, of course, evolve later to be a huge city, uh, but at this point it is mostly located on uh, its island in the middle of the Seine River when the Ragnar, or Reginius as he would be called in the Latinized texts from the time, arrives. As they had gotten all the way towards Paris, Charles the Bold, he at this point decides that enough is enough and he wants to make a stand with a real army in order to try to stop the Viking invasion. I mean, one thing is to raid the smaller cities and villages around the river, but Paris is growing in stature and is a power centre, so Charles really can't allow Paris to be sacked. Now, Charles might not have been the greatest military strategist, though, or at least he might not have had the brightest generals aiding him, because his tactics against Ragnar's incoming ships on the river was to put soldiers on both sides of the river, likely to try to bombard the Viking ships from both sides with arrows and other missile weapons. Now, encircling your opponent, this is a sound military strategy on land, but not so much when you are dividing your troops in half, making one half unable to help the other. Ragnar quickly saw what the Franks were doing, and he wisely pulled all of his ships to the left side, um, and then being working ships, the warriors were able to disembark immediately and just completely slaughtered the one half of the Frankish army, whereas the other half had to stand on the other side of the riverbank, unable to do anything to help their friends. The remaining Frankish army allegedly saw their brothers in arms being massacred, while even making things even worse the Vikings would capture a bunch of them and string up 111 of them and sacrifice them to Odin, while those who still remained at the other riverbank still watching. So the Vikings had certain numbers that they were, um, that were, they were concerned with and that was um, numbers that were important to them. So it's likely not a coincidence that it was exactly 111 that they strung up, that this might have had some, that's something to do with their religion. Anyway, after this victory, Ragnar had little or no resistance, and he pillaged Paris for six weeks, 
plundering everything of value. This famous Saint Denis monastery was completely stripped for everything uh, that had the slightest value, and Charles the Bald he had to accept that he was not at all able to chase the Vikings away from Paris militarily. That left Danegeld as the only other option, meaning the debt one had to pay to the Danes, and Charles had to take enormous amounts of silver straight from the royal coffers, and in addition to this, the people living in the area around Paris also had to pitch in whatever they had in order to finally get the Vikings to leave. Now, there will be another siege of Paris coming a little bit later that will be a much more evenly fought contest. But when it comes to the sack of Paris in 845, this is an utter tragedy for Charles the Bald and the Franks. And if you wondered, Charles the Bald was not bald, by the way. It's easy to view him as the skinhead king, uh, given his nickname, but the depictions we have of him from coins, etc., shows him with thick hair, so that is not why he got his name. In fact, some have suggested that he got the name for the quite opposite reason, because he was so hairy. But more likely, he had the name because he was... um, he was not at first appointed any land ruler in the same way as his brothers were, so earlier on, he was the one of the brothers without a crown, i.e. the bald, or the one with a bare head. Either way, the Carolingians, they just have terrible nicknames in general, like the fat and the short and so forth. We don't know exactly what happens to Rognard after the success in Paris in 845, or if he is in fact the same Ragnar Lothbrok. But him and his fleet exits the Seine River this year with their ships full of silver, and they also make a pit stop in the city of Hamburg, where where they raid a bit extra and they take a couple of nobles captive and bring them back to Denmark for ransom. According to one Christian source at the time, many of the Vikings got terribly sick on their way back and died. Now, disease was of course commonplace in the medieval period where people lived closely together and especially common within armies, but I don't think we can put this much empathy, uh, that much sort of trust into this account because it clearly seems to be some sort of telling the narrative from a Christian point of view where the Christian God triumphs in the end. And like we mentioned in the first episode, there are several sources where all of a sudden this or that saint comes to the rescue and punishes the Vikings after their raids and so forth. And according to this account, Ragnar is literally torn apart by his disease and he's in terrible agony. And this is an agony that is described in, you know, full detail with the explanation that this was a sign from God and the revenge from God or something like this. So I, I think we can safely say that this is at least an exaggeration, but we do have one source, other source, that claim Ragnar dies of disease in Denmark, so there might be something there. There is also a suggestion that there might have been internal political struggles in Denmark behind his death, if it was in fact in Denmark. And then there are these other stories about Ragnar, of course, going to England, where he ends up in King Ella's snake pit. When we are talking about the historical accuracy of legendary figures such as the Ragnar Lothbrok and the Shield Maiden Lagatha, 
It is fair to say that some historians have drawn parallels between Lagatha and the stories found in Norse mythology, especially regarding her sending the ships to Ragnar's rescue as Saxa writes, which, you know, this is also something that likely weakens her historical uh, credibility. So I would unfortunately say that there is a very, very good chance that Lagatha never existed. But on the other hand, I still think there is a pretty good chance that Ragnar Lothbrok existed. At least we know there is an important Danish Viking called Ragnar and that there was a band of warrior brothers later on that all identified as Ragnar's sons. Some of the problems when we are identifying historical characters in this period is that in Norse mythology, the gods, they are not gods in the same way as in other religions. They are more uh, they're more human and can often go undercover on earth and interact with mortals. So many various Viking kings will more or less draw their uh, lineage back to the gods. And Ragnar apparently thought that he was a descendant of Odin. And whether or not he actually believed this or that this just was a way to gain legitimacy, we don't know. But the factual and supernatural in this Viking universe is so often intertwined. For the next episode in this, our own Viking saga, so to speak, we will continue to follow the alleged adventures of Ragnar Lothbrok and his sons, and also our other Viking king Oskar and his raids up and down the European coastline. We will do a much, much overdue, real deep dive into the Norse religion, even though we are constantly touching upon it, we still have sinned against it a little bit, so to speak, by not going more in-depth, and it is just fantastic treasure chest of, of tales and general creativity, so we'll do that. And while we're doing this, we will continue following our timeline as we will move to the later parts of the 800s. We will reach the Great Heathen Army in England, and we will cover one of the most comical Viking raids ever, where the Vikings think that they're actually sacking Rome, but they're in fact sacking a completely different city. So all this and more in the next episode of this, what is looking to be a rather long series here on Game Changing History. Make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so you are not missing out on new episodes. Tell your friends if you like it, or leave a review uh, wherever you are listening. We are still a young podcast and encouragements like positive reviews is what is basically fueling this work. I have no plans of monetizing this podcast short term, so this is a product that is done purely out of love for history. As always, feel free to discuss with me on social media. Twitter is probably the easiest place you can find me, but whatever way is fine. My name is Francis Lund. There is also a web page called GameChangingHistory.com, and there's a little bit of additional information there as well. Until next time, cheers. I'm speaking to you tonight in a very serious mood, and I'm just